Chapter 16 For the public in general, and the construction world in particular, the big event of 1929 was the crash on Wall Street. Unnoticed at the same time, one of the biggest events of my life took place. Acting upon the advice of Carlton Case, I became R.G. Letourneau Incorporated. According to the papers drawn up by Case, the corporation was worth 1,000 shares at $100 each, plus assets of another $27,000 in factory, machine tools, and an inventory that included a score or so of finished machines. On paper, then, I appeared to be worth $127,000, a sum of such overwhelming magnificence that, once more, I was blinded to the contributions made by my Lord. Working with us were the relatives, with Carlton Case to handle our contracts and legal matters. Then there were Joe Johansson, a former city engineer of Glendale, California, who ran the office while I was absent on construction jobs. Vernon Love, who managed the machine tool department of the shop. Warden Webster, who kept track of all the equipment sold, leased, or borrowed. Monty Newman, who kept an eye on the men and machines on construction jobs. Al Lorsch, our all-round troubleshooter. Elmer Isgren, in charge of sheepfoot roller development and production. And Harry Andrews, our whole bookkeeping department. On the payroll in the shop were not more than 20 others, mostly welders, with maybe three or four doubling as truck drivers, tool sharpeners, janitors, and hoist operators. Except for those on the factory payroll, all of us doubled between the work going on in the factory and the work going on in the field. On the jobs, of course, we had an entirely different problem. With each new contract, we had to hire between 200 and 500 men, build a construction camp in which to feed and house them, set up all the light, water, telephone, and sanitation facilities of a small town, organize a motor pool and repair yard, buy or lease power shovels, trucks, dynamite, and at least 5,000 other items, and then keep the inspectors and the men who had hired you calm and satisfied. You can see why, with three and four construction jobs going simultaneously, we came to look upon our factory, employing only 20 or so men, as little more than a glorified garage. We built and repaired things there because there we could get better machines at less cost to keep our construction jobs going and give us the jump on our competitors. Then one day, my brother Lewis came in with a cablegram from Moscow, Russia. Their purchasing office wanted to buy one router for immediate shipment. Since it was the policy of our State Department then to help backward Russia, I agreed to the sale my only comment being to the effect that if we sold them one, we'd never sell another because they would copy it, as the Japanese were already doing with some of our better machines. Lewis saw an entirely different angle. Bob, you've missed the point, he said. Don't you see a sale to Russia makes us international businessmen? We're in world finance now, if we can collect the money. We were kidding each other, but... It did set me up. In fact, I got so proud I began to swell up like a toad. If Russia wanted a router, look at all the scores of other backward nations that might need scrapers, bulldozers, sheepfoot rollers, self-dumping hoppers, and a new electric hoist I was working on. The more I thought about it, the more enthusiastic I became. 
Up to that point, we had never gone out of our way to sell a machine. We didn't even have a salesman, let alone a sales department. Buyers like the Guy Brothers and Buck Maestretti and Henry Kaiser had come to us to buy. What would happen if we hired a salesman? Not for around the world, of course, but say for Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, where the need for new dams and irrigation systems was as great as in California, if not more so. I had one answer to that question right off. If such a salesman were to sell 10 machines, the order would swamp my factory. Or as Ray Peterson put it, we'd have to go on a 48-hour day. We did a lot of hard thinking then. It didn't occur to us that the manufacturing business would one day become the tail wagging the dog. We still thought of ourselves as construction men with a profitable sideline in selling our machines to other contractors. In a final session lasting from Friday morning until Saturday night with Evelyn providing the coffee and sandwiches, we drew up plans for a new factory triple the size of our Moss Avenue plant. I will say it was quite a plant. An all-steel, all-welded structure. Once my pencil got going, I couldn't stop it. Not a plant in which the roof and walls would serve to cover an internal framework of steel girders. As I sketched away, it became a plant in which the welded steel roof and walls were in themselves an integral part of the structure's strength. Instead of being supported by the posts and trusses on which I rigged my overhead crane and jib cranes, the walls and roof would serve to support them. All told, I cut in half the cost of structural steel normally needed for a plant of that size while providing, through welding, a method of erecting it at less than half the normal cost of construction. For about $50,000 then, I would get a $100,000 plant. Where to build it? John, better known as Joe Johansson, held out for Los Angeles. If we're going to ship machines east of the Rockies, Los Angeles has got the best all-weather railroads and highways. It has a good port at San Pedro for bringing in steel from the east through the Panama Canal and shipping the finished machines out. Along with that, you've got a better year-round climate than you have here in Stockton. As a Glendale man, he was a good Chamber of Commerce representative, but his own Chamber of Commerce wouldn't buy him. We even went so far as to buy the land for a factory site before the Los Angeles City Engineers condemned the whole project as one of the most ridiculous propositions they'd ever been forced to listen to. Anyone in his right mind, was their combined opinion, knows that an all-welded steel building will rust and fall apart after the first rain. If that's the way they feel about it, sell the factory site, I told Joe. He did to another manufacturer who erected a safe wooden structure that was promptly eaten by termites. In the meantime, Evelyn, covering Stockton regularly with the trailer to pick up her Sunday school kids, had seen some vacant lots for sale over by Roosevelt Avenue and Wilson Way, almost diagonally across town from our Moss Avenue shop. Residentially, they were undesirable because the main line of the Southern Pacific cut through the lots and a big highway passed in front of them. But as a factory site, we welded together our factory during the winter of 1930 and 31 and had outgrown it before we moved in.
I remember our engineering office with individual electric lights for each draftsman had to give way to two engine lathes, and only by a stroke of luck was I able to buy an old streetcar from the Stockton Transit Company in which to house our engineers. The cane seats of the car set up under an oak tree gave the men something to sit on during lunchtime. Our first step in the direction of our cafeterias that would one day feed 5,000 men. Now I was a two-factory man as well as a contractor. Then Harry Andrews came around in March with the sales figures for 1930. Total sales, he announced proudly, amounted to $110,808.60 and had brought in a net profit of $34,794.92. Not only had I broken the $100,000 mark, but I had sold more machines in one year than in all my previous years in business. My ego, already dangerously inflated, did not deflate any with this news. That night I got down on my knees and gave due thanks to God for His bounty and for sparing us from the business depression that was sweeping the country. And now that the new factory is finished, we'll really do some business. So instead of giving you your share now, I'll put it all into expanding the business and next year you'll get a share to be proud of. To what foolish lengths man will let his pride drive him. God does not do business that way. He keeps his promises. When you ask his help, he doesn't answer that he has a lot of pressing things to attend to, so come back next year. His time is now. In the early days, the true Christians gave God his share from the first fruits of the crops. They had faith. They didn't wait around to see if the later crops were to be destroyed by locusts or drought. Let God's will be done and the rewards will be so great there won't be room to store them. But start to hedge and wait to see how the whole crop turns out before giving God his share. And he knows you as a man of little faith. He sure spotted my false reasoning in a hurry. <laughs>